Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Martin Lorbecki. Martin is a comic book artist based in the United Kingdom. Martin's work has a distinctive style and is featured in the upcoming anthology series, Uncanny Valley, which is now on Kickstarter. Martin, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hi, Milton. I'm so glad to be talking with you. This is a long-awaited date for both of us because you, you have been putting together the pitch um, for a Kickstarter, um, for a very, very long time. And this week you are finally launching the campaign. And so I was wondering, we will go into much more detail in a moment, uh, but tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about the campaign, which by the time they hear this, will will have launched. Okay. The kick, the Kickstarter that's going to be launched hopefully on 3rd of May, this Monday, um, is uh, the first collection of an anthology project that I've been working on with with a, with a comic book writer, Rick Quinn, of since 2018, the first anthology of Uncanny Valley Archive 001. And it's a collection of sci-fi short stories based on like anthologies like Black Mirror, I think rick was inspired by twilight zone and for me i think my inspirations was like kashiro otomo's memories and uh the indie comic writers lando's garden of glass and recently the netflix animated anthology love death and robots fantastic now memories is that a manga it's a manga originally to start off with but then it became a collection of free short films in the, I think at the late nineties. Um, so one of them, one of the short films was actually based on a short story that Kashiro Otomo wrote and draw himself. But then the other two are kind of loosely based on just like other creators own ideas. Okay. Okay. I will definitely have to check that out. I, I have never uh, consumed any of that in any format. That sounds interesting. Yeah. So Kashiro, the- oh, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. No, I was just saying that Kesho Otomo's uh, anthology stories are really interesting, worth reading. That's great. That's great. And I'm happy that the listeners to the podcast here will already uh, 
learn one of one of your strengths as a creator. Um, I've I've uh, befriended you for a number of years now, so mm-hmm. I've been privy to the fact that you are quite a consistent source of fascinating influences and constantly recommending good uh, comics, manga, anime, games, music um, that that I've never heard of. So um, every, everyone should follow your social media just just to just to get your recommendations. Yeah, I do uh, weekly recommendations from my archives every Thursdays I try. So yeah, it's worth checking them out. Yeah, yeah, you do a really good job of choosing things that like-minded people would really be interested in, but may not have, <coughs> excuse me, ever heard okay. of. Yeah, I try to recommend stuff that maybe not people have heard about frequently, but also trying to make sure that you can still get access to it. Because I think one recommendation I made was a few weeks ago, I thought I I looked back on it and I realized, oh, this book I recommend has cost like hundreds of dollars and pounds to get a used copy for it. So I so it's like a hard, sometimes I have difficulties trying to figure out a good recommendation every week now. Yeah, yeah, you do. I, I highly recommend uh, your social media feed to everyone for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will say what that is at the end of the program. Let's keep everybody, sure. uh, of course, uh, uh, on on their toes, waiting to hear that. So let's back up before we go into detail of uh, the Uncanny Valley anthology. I, I'd be curious to learn more about your journey into becoming a comics creator. Uh, first, let's start, wh- where did you begin uh, your journey in terms of reading comics? Uh, I think reading comics because, uh, I, think it, I think for me, because at a very young age, I was diagnosed with, with the autistic spectrum disorder. So, so one of the things with my autism was I had a lot of difficulties reading like novels like almost like heavily worded books mm-hmm. and i just couldn't like concentrate focus and i think i was found it much more easier to read uh comics i think like one of well one that i can remember from earliest memories the tintin comics like getting them from the libraries and then getting the odd copies for like birthdays and christmas and just reading those and then i think during teenage years it i've learned the existence of a comic book shop in my local hometown and um then just gradually just started getting more into comics i think i think one of my first big comic book series that i really got into was actually uh bprd not hellboy itself so wow okay so i actually got really more interested in bprd and I think when I learned about this comic book shop and realizing the existence of subscriptions for it, I ended up buying and reading from like my late teens to my current into recent years. um, Everything from BPRD's, I think, the Hell on Earth story arc, which was probably been one of my favorite long running comic book series I've read of all time. That's fantastic. So, um, but then, yeah, so just, I got into comics and just got really interested. And I think during like, um, after school and doing college and then just kind of, I think I was doing like graphic design studies in college and 
still kind of getting interested in comics during then so I just kind of made the odd comic when I can and then when I went to university to study illustration I'd um, just kind of continued working on it and then I think end of year made my first like proper like 16 page short comic but then I think after that was around 2014 when I made that first comic I almost had about two or three years of not making comics and why was so, that? I think it was just because when I graduated, I realized I I needed to get a day job to essentially pay for things. And so I just didn't really have, I think, busy with a day job. And I just didn't I think I didn't have the motivation or the the motivation. Yeah, the motivation to um, make a comic. So I just kind of did my day job. But during all of that, I just... I think it was on Tumblr. I just did constantly posted sketches and concept drawings of ideas of like sci-fi post-apocalyptic worlds I was thinking of at the time. And then um, I think it was 2017 after starting a different job. And um, I think I encountered a Tumblr post which was promoting actually one of Rick's comics, which was Salt the... I think it was Saltwater. So I okay. liked that and re and like shed and all of that. And then then all of a sudden I got a message from the guy from Rick himself saying, Hey, I've just thank you for sharing. I also had a look at your work and would you be interested in doing a comic with me? So I and that was uh, our first, that was my probably essentially my back get of me returning into making comics, which was oh, the that's- first that's amazing. So, um, are you pretty sure that 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 interaction took place on Tumblr? Yeah, it started on Tumblr initially, and then um, it, I think when Tumblr got a bit weird, um, I shifted over to Twitter. So it all kind of went on there and Instagram, and just kept in touch with Rick. And then I think after we did made and release Ghost Butterfly. Um, he came back to me with another proposal, which was the Uncanny Valley anthology, which then did Earworm. And then I did some other comics with, I think, Edward Haynes for one called Drift. And then another guy who found my work through, um, oh, actually, I just completely forgot about that. I did actually do do a two-page anthology for a zine. So he found some of my work that way. So we, I did a 16-page short comic with him that was called Ellie, which was a pilot pitch sci-fi comic, which was fun to do as well. And right. then, and then throughout the throughout those years as well, I've just been working on working with Rick to um, doing comics for Uncanny Valley. So the fact that you and Rick met on tumblr i think is going to be an important piece of internet history that we should note um that will justify the existence of that crazy platform uh in and of itself yeah so so that's that's good to know but sadly um, go ahead but yeah it it went weird and i i don't even know if it still exists it still exists but i destroyed my tumblr blog so all of my previous work from i think I think from 2013 to I think it's 17 or 18 is all gone now, but 
it's still I think all the original drawings I did for those years are sitting on a hard drive somewhere. I I remember distinctly bef- about like a year before all of their content controversies, they had a redesign. And yeah. I know there's often a, a knee-jerk response to redesigns that are in the negative, but I think this is objectively true that they ruined their own site with their redesign because one of the things that I loved about Tumblr was you could hit a hashtag for a sub-community and bring up just this wall of content that you could glance at immediately. Mm -hmm. And like, if, if there was a certain TV show you liked or something, you know, you could check in like eight hours after the episode aired and you'd see all the memes and you could, you could guess like, okay, the community dug it. The community's divided on it. It it, it was a cool resource for that. And then they redesigned it and all of that stuff kind of went away and it, it was just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was just like I didn't feel happy going on Tumblr at that time, so that's why I felt like at the time it was just the best decision for well-being to just shut everything down with my Tumblr stuff and just kind of just have just focus more on my Twitter and Instagram so, pages because I feel like that's where it's been happening more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I, I confess I still don't understand Instagram. Um, one day, hopefully, I will. Yeah. So you connect with Rick and Rick becomes one of your most um, frequent collaborators in comics. Um, Mm -hmm. Why he's been on the podcast before and hopefully most of the people listening may have already heard of him. Uh, But um, describe what it's like working with him and describe his writing for us. Um, It's interesting. I try to figure out how to word it because I think in, I would say working with him initially, the only way we did communications was either through um, just text message, like just essentially direct messaging each other through either through Tumblr or Twitter or emails. And that was throughout everything when we were working on um, Airworm, Ghost Butterfly, Airworm, and Chameleons. And then last year when the big pandemic thing happened, um, we decided to actually, because I, with the starting of Merriweather, I just we just decided to try and do weekly meetings to just discuss about what we're thinking and just feel like that helped both of us to try and generate ideas and like discuss how to what helps to what we need what we need to focus on on projects and all of that. So it's and it just I felt like that has helped me especially focus more on how to get the work done and all of that. And then you're saying that about his writing. Yeah. Yeah. His writing and your art have, have a kind of a shared vibe that I I think goes together very well. Um, Mm -hmm. How would you describe Rick's writing to someone? I think I feel like with Rick, what he does well is that he looks at an artist and, gets the idea of how to get his story to work with the artist. And that's how yes. I felt when doing it with, especially I think with Airworm, when you pitched that one towards me of how it was done, we just kind of like work together on, like I try to work with his script ideas and then, 
and then he tries to also maybe make tweaks to the story to work with some of the concepts I was proposing because I think I think one that really sort of like where we kind of almost like worked together he did more of the script than was especially with chameleons because um with chameleons the idea was it's actually based on two concepts that I proposed to Rick when we were trying to generate story ideas mm-hmm. which one was I think the concept was called target acquired which was the idea that these uh people in a weapons research facility are hiding from a rogue automated weapon system and they have to rely on like camouflage or cloaking tech to hide from the machine mm-hmm. so the so that element uh and then the other story concept i had when we were talking about it was it was just called gods which i think we it which came up with the abbreviate i think it is an abbreviation which is geo orbital defense satellites and the idea that this is like tribal post-apocalyptic world where these tribes are waging war but one of the tribes have like spears that have attached targeting beacons so when they throw the spears the these sat weapon satellites just fire at the target the spears and then fire upon them so it's these two little pro these these little concepts got merged together to become chameleons which is one of the stories featured in this anthology we've done yeah so let's let's go into depth a little bit more on the anthology itself you've Mm -hmm. you've you've teased chameleons here and it's genesis um tell tell us um at a high level um what the campaign is what what backers will get um and then we'll move on to like specifics and the stories and stuff okay so at the moment with the with the kickstarter page one of the main rewards is the book itself either digital pdf version or physical copy printed copy of the of containing the the two stories earworm chameleons as well as two new stories by uh uh two different artists that have joined us on this project uh first one story called uh tell us how you tell us how you really feel sorry about that um and um that one's being drawn by uh i think sorry just bear with me just trying to remember the name uh nami oshiro who's who's doing that one and from what we've seen so far with the artwork that looks really good and then the other story we're that we're going to have featured in this is uh, Computer Blue, which is about an android where you can upload all your negative thoughts and emotions into this android. And that is also being drawn by um, by one of our, the other artists who've joined in is Amy Wilensky. And then we're also going to have um, some pinup artwork featuring some guest artists of some personal favorite indie artists that we've met throughout our time on social medias and also just having chats with them and just some all this other cool stuff i think there's mugs and some i think chance to buy some of the original art some original artwork theming on this anthology as well and you have clearly done some preparation just for the promotional aspect of of the campaign there's some really attractive um 
animated gifts that you have mm-hmm. uh, to help promote. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about those. Those are really interesting. Um, yeah. So I think when we were, I think when we started, decided to doing the designs and visuals for the anthology collection itself, I think one of my inspirations for doing it was I wanted it to be like this corporate research institute feel to it. So I think, yeah, I think one of the definite big inspirations that I think some people will definitely pick up is the uh, research institute from the video game series Portal, the Aperture Science. So it's so I we just me and Rick like this idea that we are this the Uncanny Valley is this research institute that specializes in narrative research simulations. So so this anthology is essentially showing these all the so these stories are like simulations that this research institute is doing. Yeah, they're very attractive and very cool looking. And as one of the perks uh, at one of the reward tier levels, uh, backers, if I'm not mistaken, they can get a, uh, not an animated gift, but they can get a a similar employee uh, portrait, correct? Yeah, they can get a temporary employee ID image sketched, drawn by me to as like one of the higher tier backers on all of that. So I just thought it'd be kind of fun to have because we just like, like I said, I just like the idea of these. Um, I think the idea of the um of the ID employee ID portraits is I think probably one of the more obvious ones is the uh, codec portraits from Metal Gear Solid. And um, I think, but just like, I just like the idea of these employee, like employee IDs. And I just thought it'd be a nice little touch to the, the world building design of the anthology itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, uh, very attractive. uh, Mm -hmm. That's for sure. So um, let me see here. Um, so you told us a little bit about Chameleons, uh, yep. which is one of the stories that's included. Um, another one of the stories is Earworm. And yeah. I, I, I need to give a disclaimer before we talk about this. I, I'm actually credited as a co-writer on this mm-hmm. one. So I have a, a little bit of a vested interest in uh, the success, success of this whole project uh, as well but um it, my contribution is very very tiny in the overall scheme of this project um tell me a little bit about how earworm came about on your radar from rick um with um earworm i think it was because when rick proposed the uh the anthology back in the end of 2017 i think it was right before new year's new year um he sent me just like a a pitch list of like all the initial short stories and i think airworm was actually the first one on the list of the ideas so um so it was that uh, because he was describing this idea of a noir noir thriller of um the uh just like these mysterious murders and the only thing that's connected to it is this unusual sound and i just thought oh that could be that's interesting and just thought yeah let's let's do this um i definitely wanted to get back into in comics and i felt this is the best way of doing it excellent yeah that one turned out really well that's that's a 
both chameleons and earworm are, are, are truly, truly fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, no, you go ahead. No, I was just saying that I was surprised that with earworm that it got shortlisted for best comic of 2019 for pipe dream comics. I think I like I didn't even realize it was being shortlisted for it at the time. I think it was Pipe Dream Comics. Hey, that's fantastic. I didn't even know this. That's cool. Yeah, so um I think it was because I think it was like someone on Instagram like going like, Hey, congratulations on your shortlisting and I'll go, Wait, what? <laughs> and I think I actually did mention this to um I think in one of my previous podcast interviews about it. So it was just kinda funny that um that we got shortlisted for earworm to be one of best one of the best comics for yeah i think it was 2019 for that and um but yeah that was uh that was a, a quite a nice surprise for that so you have mentioned that um that this is an anthology series and that there are other contributors uh nani yeah. and amy amy being among them um and there are a number of others as well that we have not discussed but in general um the the overall approach here um this is volume one and in the future there there will at least it's planned to be additional volumes right yeah we're hoping to still well rick is currently still working on um doing some new short stories for futures shorts sorry future stories for the anthology so we're hoping to kind of continue with this and hopefully get some new artists to join into the project as well to share more of the sto stories and concepts of this anthology. Cool. 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 So um, let's talk about the future for yourself outside of uncanny Valley. You did mention earlier um, that you changed your work approach with Rick on a project called Meriwether. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about that one. Okay. Uh, project Meriwether. Um, it's the one I'm currently working on development and working on pages slowly. Um, it's it, we started this project last year when the pandemic start because after I think the original what originally happened is we finished Chameleons just after just at the start of 2020, and then um, everything happened with the pandemic, and then. At the time, we were planning to actually, I was going to do another Uncanny Valley short, which I think it was called The Receptionist, which was about a future where there was incurable diseases and the only way to help people were to transfer their minds into synthetic bodies. And when we were looking at this and seeing how everything was going with the pandemic, we just went, I don't think we're in the right mindset to do this. I don't, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. So it just felt like this is too depressing for what's going on outside. So um so Rick messaged me saying he's had this new project idea called uh Merriweather, which was kinda which really interested me because it was sort of it was inspirations of like Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, I think Near Automata, the video game, uh Death Stranding, just essentially a really interesting set of post-apocalyptic narratives that I've liked myself personally. So I just, and I just felt like, and we wanted to kind of do like more, I think, I think the right term is positive sci-fi instead of dystopian sadness all the time. So it was just interesting to do this project and just, I think 
and just kind of um I think as well like some of my own personal work like my own personal drawings and concepts like fitted really well with this concept so we just wanted the, to actually develop this hopefully this new project series for this and and it's just at the moment it's just take I'm taking my time to make sure I'm getting it to look good but I'm, hopefully now I should be in the right mindset to um do page production now yeah, I, I I'm afraid I've made this joke several times, but I can't resist it. Um, when yeah. I first when I first learned about Project Merryweather, I I was initially very skeptical and worried uh, because you, when you say pivoting away from uh, sadness and dystopia, um, mm-hmm. to me the 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 Quinn Lorbecki um, brand is sadness and dystopia. Yeah. So uh, I felt like we were maybe going to have like a Bob Dylan goes electric uh, scenario here. Mm -hmm. Um, But then over time, as, as the work began developing, I've been uh, privileged to see some of the previews of the ideas and uh, the concept artwork. And it's, it's perfectly correct for you guys. You, um, it's, it's, it's like, you're not skipping a beat at all. It seems like a, a perfectly natural evolution in your in your storytelling, your narrative, your art, it, it's, it's working really good so far. Yeah. And I think as well with, um, with project Mary, where I was always developed as I'm been developing it for the visual designs of it around the time, Netflix had a really fun animated series, which had similar f- ideas called uh Kipo and the age of wonder beasts. Um, where it's it's an old age animated series, but it's set like two hundred years in the future after civilization's been decimated by these mutant animals, and this teenagers like who lived in this underground burrow as has been trapped on the surface and tries to find her way back home. And just the art design and the characters and all of that, it just felt like, yeah, we can make fun post apocalyptic stories without it being miserable and depressing and horribly bleak but you do it so well yeah yeah i know we do it so well but i feel like at the same time it's i think because of the bleak depressing post-apocalyptic i feel like i feel like i'm one of those people now where it's like it's done so many times now yeah and and i think i've discovered like some like post-apocalyptic narratives that like definitely done different ways of telling the story like tell a different way in the same setting and i just found those kind of ways of doing it is really interesting for what it is and i just and it's just kind of nice to do some like do post-apocalyptic but not follow the same formats that usually go with it Mm -hmm. so it's so it is um it is an interesting i do like post-apocalyptic sci-fi and cyberpunk genres but i always like the idea of having twists to those genres and not always follow the norm with that so i always i think because i think it's like the same with like neon genesis evangelion it's it's a post it in its own way it is a post-apocalyptic series but there is still civilization and humanity is still trying their best to save mankind and the like the finale is such a surreal thing and i i think it's i just like those surreal and not typical post-apocalyptic settings 
So let's talk a little bit about your your process and your style. Um, mm-hmm. One of the signature elements of your style is you not only illustrate your comics, but you also almost always, as far as I know, color them yourself as well. And you yeah. frequently, you frequently, if not exclusively, use watercoloring. Um, and I'm curious. Um, on the one hand. Let's talk about what led you to that style and then talk a little bit about what it's like to utilize that style in a given project. Sure. How did you how did you arrive at that that style? The watercolor style. That yeah. was, that one's interesting because um I think before the watercolor style during like uni- my university days, I think I did a lot of like water-based inks and like digital kind of like coloring. So like minimal color palettes and all of that. And I think even before, I think before meeting Rick Quinn, that I even went, I think almost like a Ben Temple Smith coloring phase as well. Okay. So, so I'd like did everything in like black and white shading tones and then like just add like a color tone on top just to bring it out more. But those coloring processes, it just felt like, I think I was just taking too much time doing it. And I just felt like there's got to be a, a way that I've, that I can keep consistent. Now, then, when you, when you talk about adding a coloring tone on top of the sort of gray wash is, would that be done also in watercolor the, or would that be done? digitally? No, this is before, no, this was all done digitally. So it was okay. All, okay. Okay. So the black and white shading was all done in Photoshop. And then, um, and then okay. I added a color on top. I think, as I mentioned, I think, very briefly i did like a two-page anthology submission for a zine i think it was back in 2016 so i kind of sort of forgot about that whole thing um that i think i spent like three or four weeks on those just those two pages on its own because i did it i colored it in one way and then i felt like that didn't work so i had to redo everything again and i think i was calling it close to the submission so I just felt like I like the style, but I can't keep it consistent or a reasonable time length. And then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. around this time, I was starting to read uh, Jeff Lemire's work, uh, Sweet Tooth and Trillium mm-hmm. for watercolors and as well as Matt Kint's uh, Mind Management and um, Department H or Depth. I don't know how people want to pronounce that title of that comic. Um, well, well, as as an American, I could just sit here and listen to uh, someone from the UK pronounce the letter H all day long. Say that yeah. again for me. H. <laughs> don't worry, people here in because of my American accent here in the UK. I think there was one person who kept asking me to say marshmallow because it's I say it very different to them here so it's it's very funny but yeah so I think I think it's funny with the mindset of doing starting to do watercolors because I think during university I didn't want it to do watercolors because I felt like it was an expensive material to purchase and I don't think I can figure it out I'm just seeing all this stuff and I'm like seeing all these impressive watercolor illustrations that I think some of the other students were doing and I just like I can't get my head around it. I can't figure this out. I don't want to waste money and then realize I'll never use this material. Um, and then I think I found like a nice, I think after reading like Jeff Lemire's and Matt Kint's comics, like 
ones drawn by themselves as well. I, and I just felt like with the styles, I'm like, yeah, I think I can get that to work with, with the stuff I do. And I think I found like a nice little watercolor set that was on sale in a nice little art shop in London and um, started practicing with watercolors. So, and I think that was actually in 2017, months prior to Rick finding my work for Butterfly. So that was the first comic using the the style that would be become now. And I think one of I just remember just completely forgot about this. I think one of a major inspiration for the watercolor art style that I do now is is Studio Ghibli Studio Ghibli concept sketches, watercolor sketches that are done by uh, Miyazaki himself, and and I think I really liked. I think one of my most favorite Studio Ghibli art books was the uh, the Nausicaa art book, as like the essentially the first half of the book is all of his watercolor illustrations and I just loved what he did with them. But yeah. I I think I also liked um the little concept sketches where it was only just like like two or three colors used to bring like almost like a like bring environments to the draw to the sketches that he's to the, that they did. Mm-hmm. So was, so those were kind of like the Jeff Lemire, Matt Kent and Studio Ghibli cons- watercolor sketches. They were sort of the core inspirations to the watercolor style that have that I've been developing for the last few years. Yeah. And so, so. um as you approach projects now, um mm-hmm. tell 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 us a little bit about just your overall art process. Um how how do you iterate from the script to the final page? Um I I've witnessed some of this uh, so I'm aware of a little bit of it. Um I, I, you do start with a pretty quick pencil thumbnail, right? Sometimes I do pencil thumbnails, but then I think, especially when working with some of these scripts, I spend a bit of time to try to do like world building drawings, so I can just get the feel of like the the characters, the settings, and all of that, and then as well just develop the the uh, the techniques that I was going to use to make the final thing, and then when I think I have all the world elements for the script then I do the thumbnail sketches. And then once I feel like I've got both the character designs, the environment designs, the thumbnail sketches and everything together, then I just start making, produ- like start making the pages. But sometimes what I do like to do sometimes is do um, page tests. So it, essentially I make a complete comic page not based on the script but just purely just to test out the style and the theme of the of the comic to make sure that i'm happy with the way the way it's going to look when i start making these pages yeah i've seen a couple of examples of those from you and i love that and i wish more artists would do that and a few times i've actually um sort of uh started a project and write i would write uh, like a quick little uh premise uh page um just for that same purpose but i would almost rather the artist uh come up with a, a an idea for what to be on the test page um i i think that works really well for you yeah i just feel like it's a really good way to just get the mindset of going like 
this is how I'm going to get these pages to look. And sometimes I think like uh, I think especially with chameleons, I did do a test page, but then I kind of converted it as a teaser saying that this is this is the next Uncanny Valley story and this is how it's going to look. So it's not like a really high quality, like highly rendered illustration that's not going to be like the comic pages itself. I just kind of like the idea that you're going to see what the comic is going to look like itself. Yeah, it, it, it's almost equivalent in my thinking to what they do in movies and television um, and they call a sizzle reel, mm-hmm. which, you know, is often comprised of uh, test footage or inspiration from other projects, you know, kind of cut together in a new context with new music or whatever, um, just to give you the the aesthetic sort of mission statement of the like the tone of the piece mm-hmm. yeah um but yes i think it is just it is kind of nice to do those especially i think we last year when we were developing um still developing merryweather i did the pages for a prologue page which just to experiment the uh the style that i was going to go with for that project when we get that going um so we did that i don't think we're i don't know yet what the plans are releasing it at the moment i'm still having an internal conversation with myself of i want to redraw the prologue because i think i've done designs (laughs) much better and rick's just i think rick is going like no you're fine it's good i'm like no i want it better (laughs) (laughs) so and i think this is this is i guess this is one of my other i think it's one of my problems with me when i do world building it's like i don't know when it i can say yeah that's good enough or go like i think especially with merryweather it's like i feel like uh i just i feel like i got all these other ideas i think i can tweak the designs like this and i don't think it's ready yet so i'm having so sometimes that's been a problem but hopefully now i can definitely focus on working on those pages now yeah, um as a as a third party observer, I th- I think this is this is a project an example where y- you may have gone too far in that part of the process. Um I've 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 been seeing some of these concepts and I've always been uh annoyingly teasing you with like, "Hey, I want to see pages." Um <laughs> so, um apologies for that, but also it's I'm okay. not apologizing for that. <laughs> um I I think there are some projects that would actually um, that you would maybe be able to get away with including a lot of that world building in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just as extras there, there are certain projects that I think um, would benefit from having those sorts of things is almost like, um, you know, meta commentary or uh, alternative perspective type things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, the fact that you have that as a key part of your process, I think overall definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause um, I think one of the nice things with Mary Weber is, is um, we're just treating it as episodic chapters with each comic. So it's not like, Oh, we got to do this, this X amount of pages. We just do, we do a story set in this world and we just 
keep doing it like that, just kind of small chunks. And I think that's kind of, I feel like for me and Rick, one of our strong points is just doing these short narrative pieces. Yeah. But I feel like it is definitely interesting us doing this kind of like almost, almost like ongoing long running project series idea. So I'm looking forward to this because this is, this is something very different to what I've done before. In many and, ways. Yeah. So. Well, it's off to a great start. I'm, I'm privileged to have, uh, to have seen, mm-hmm. uh, some of the stuff, uh, but my my only feedback remains the same feedback. Uh, more faster, more more faster, yeah. more. Please. Well, hopefully, when we get kicks the Uncanny Valley Kickstarter going, we could definitely I could definitely focus more on that. Yes, everybody listening, please back the the Uncanny Valley at double whatever uh, uh, level you can afford, and uh, we can we can get that into the world and the next thing as well. Uh, mm-hmm. but- yeah. Trust me, it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic. So um, one of the things that we like to do here on the program is put put all of our guests on the spot and ask them, what's on your cultural radar? What are you okay. reading? What are you watching uh, that you can recommend to us? Okay. Um, I think one of the big ones for me that's definitely under my radar is not a, co- is not a comic, not a book or a film it's actually a video game that i've been playing since last week friday that i've been excited for since the start of the pandemic because it's it was announced was the re the remake of the original 2000 game post-apocalyptic rpg called near but it's a ver it's one of the versions of near called near replicant but they have the other title for this is near replicant version this is the reboot version 1.22474487139 ellipses <laughs> which um as i was saying before about i've been really interested in like alternative post apocalyptic narratives or un- like surreal ones uh this one with near it's one of those ones that have been one of my big in- inspirations in recent years because of the post this the the world that this these games are set in are so surreal because it's like set thousands of years in the future and um but it's it's annoying because i don't want to spoil it because if you ever do play it for yourself i the story for these near for like near replicant specifically is really different and unique and it's not what you think it is Interesting, interesting. Now, am I remembering correctly? Have you also recommended in the past uh, the the soundtrack for this series? Yeah, that's one of the biggest things for this game for this game series. In there is its soundtracks. It is quite quite arguably one of the best soundtracks I've hit, I've heard of all time. Like for scores and all of it, um, especially for the original Near, because the it just had these really unique mixes of songs. I think. I think my personal favorites is the first track called Snow and Summer. And um, and I think there's, a, there's some other really good ones. Um, Song of the Ancients, Fate, Emile, Sacrifice. But there's just so many good songs in it. And they've done so many different album like soundtracks. Um, I think there's like piano covers, remix albums. But one of the recent ones they did was the orchestral arrangements 
which mm-hmm. um, I was lucky enough to actually see, see one of the live concerts in London. And um, I think when I saw that perform live, I ne- I nearly cried because it was such, such, so beautifully performed by the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I think that's, that's the orchestra for it. But it's, yeah, the soundtracks for Nier are, any all of I would say yeah all of the soundtracks for the Nia franchise are definitely worth listening to, and they've and I've like and I've enjoyed listening to a lot during my um, when working on these comics as well. Now this this all sounds incredibly intriguing and fascinating, but it also sounds to me like it could potentially be one of those franchises that might be intimidating to start, like you know, like Gundam or. Um, um, Star Wars or whatever, it, yeah. just in ter- or Doctor Who, just in terms of like, where do you start? Like, where would you recommend someone start to the, get into this, the near universe? I would, I would definitely recommend the the new one, Near Replicant, because it's a pre, it's the it's the it's a re- it's the remake of the original Near that came out back in two thousand and ten, which I think only because um there's it was a weird thing because um in Japan they had two different versions of the game. And um, so, and uh, so there were two versions called Near Replicant and Near Gestalt in Japan. Replicant, which is the one that didn't get released in the U- in the U- in the West at the time, is because that version was like a brother and sister story. But the one we got, which was the called the Gestalt version, it was a father and daughter story. So the protagonist of that game was was two different people, like two different age ages of character i think mm-hmm. so it's a bit weird but um so we so in 2010 we only got one version of near and then then this year they decided to remake the game but they wanted to use the replicant version so it's the brother and sister story okay so the the ma- the actual story of the game itself is still the same it's just the protagonist the type of protagonist is different interesting interesting um, but it's still one of those things it's, I would like to say as much as I can about it, but I feel like the less you know about the nar- the story of this game and the way the game works, the more you will enjoy it when you discover it for yourself. Cool. Cool. Well, that does sound fascinating. And I have, I have threatened to do this many, many, many times in the past uh, decade. And I've, I've kind of half halfway done it and failed but i'm um i'm gonna try to get back into video games mm-hmm. uh, this this year and um on my on my calendar is the remaster or redo or whatever they're calling it of mass effect um i've never oh played yeah that. the remaster and, mm-hmm. and that has been very very acclaimed and highly recommended by a number of people so i'm gonna, I'm gonna try that and I, i'll try near here as well yeah, I would say Near Replicant, the the remake of Near, is definitely worth playing, and also it's definitely worth playing the sequel, Near Automata, where it's set. I think it's like, five, um, it's set like eight thousand years after the events of the original game, and there's Ooh. this whole machine war between machine life forms that are that have been made by an invading alien force, and and they're and the resist android resistant groups built by humans so you play the androids fighting these machine life forms in this 
super far distant post-apocalyptic future. Cool. Cool. But, um, well, this sounds, you yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying though, they're really interesting games and especially how they do their stories and how they work with the game mechanics as well. This sounds very, very intriguing. I, I definitely want to, want to check okay. it out. Well, so think, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say about the other things under my radar as well. I didn't know if that's what you were going to ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything that's uh, outside of the realm of video games since I'm so uh, yeah, so lax on video games at the moment? No, that's fine. I was I got some others. Um, I think other one, I just recently finished the Netflix limited anime series called Yasuke. Oh, wow, that was fast. That just came out, didn't it? Yeah, it just came out, uh, I think, Thursday, 29th of April. Um, that one's a six-episode series, and it I enjoyed it. It's... Um, it had a really good team. Um, it was the series was directed by LaShawn Thomas. No, LaShawn Thomas. Sorry about that. Um, he uh, directed an anime series. I think I think in 2019 that I enjoyed as well called Cannon Busters. But also it the music's done by um, a really a really good composer that I re- really enjoyed recently is Flying Lotus. He's um, also done some music for, I think, some anime projects. I think he did um, Carol and Tuesday and the Blade Runner short film Blackout 2022. Okay. So he's he's really good. And um, and Lakeith Stanfield voices the main character, Yasuke, as well. So just Well, I'm really... sold. That's all you needed to say. I'm sold. So it's, it's a really interesting, um, I think it's a fantasy sci-fi retelling of, based on a... Um, 16th century samurai warrior the first black samurai so it's it's really interesting i think he and it did inspire the creation of the anime um afro samurai as well but yeah i've just finished watching that recently and i really enjoyed that series that's definitely worth watching it's only six episodes as well so it's quite nice excellent excellent and um i try to think other things, I've recently just finished audiobook for uh, an interesting sci-fi horror called The Fold by Peter Kleins, part of a, I think it's called the Threshold series. Where it's, because um, that one's about this guy investigating this DARPA re- research team that claimed they've successfully developed teleportation technology by folding dimensions. By default, by folding dimension fields, mm-hmm. but but as they're saying, it's perfectly safe. It's all fine. The, there's just this horrible suspicion that there's something else might be going on with that, and it's just the way the story has been. It was writ, written and told. It's very well done, and the mystery, like it's definitely worth reading for that one. For if you like Lovecraftian themed sci-fi horror. That sounds very interesting. And um, try to think other things that have been that under my recent radar is the album "Nurture" by Porter Robinson, an electronic album. Um, that one's really not. I really enjoyed all the electronic music in that, and that's actually been one of my recent album ins- music inspirations for Meriwether. Very cool. And then I think lastly, film-wise, just so we can tick that off the list, <laughs> is um, Palm Springs. 
Uh, I think it's on Hulu for the US, but over here it's on Amazon Prime. It's a time loop movie that I was surprised how good it was. Yeah, I heard a lot of very positive reviews, and I just anticipated it being some sort of rom com or something. Uh, yeah, it's it's got the based bit on of the rom- participants. Yeah, it's a it's rom com, but I feel like it's in a way it's sort of like a modern day Groundhog Day, like how Groundhog Day would be done now. But okay. it's I think Adam Sandberg does really good as the guy who's been stuck in the time loop for a questionable length of time and he's just gotten so used to it. We will and, take that last statement under highly skeptical advisement. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I know, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of this, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a co-chair uh, lieutenant in the local chapter of the Andy Sandberg hate society. So um, yeah. I, I will reluctantly uh, give this, this film a whirl since you have uh, praised it so highly. Yeah. But, uh, it's, Please because note I've, that I, I go in with uh, advanced baggage. Yeah. Well, I think as well, it's, I think the nice thing about this film, it doesn't, it's well. I felt like this film is really well paced. It doesn't drag out and all of that. So, and, um, and all the actors in it are really good. I think JK Simmons is really good in it. I don't want to spoil what, what his character is in that film, but, but yeah, that it's a fun, fun to watch time loop film for that fantastic fantastic and i don't think there's anything else the only comic thing i guess i'm reading is just the my kickstarter copy arrived for um maddie once upon a time in the future the duncan jones and alex d campy graphic novel but i'm only halfway reading it so i can't really record can't say much about that yet yeah i that's on my list too i haven't had a chance to read that 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 looks fantastic but um yeah so mainly for me is just near games that have been on my mind under this cultural radar i think if we did this i think if we did this i think if we did this a few months ago i'd probably be talking about that post-apocalyptic anime decadence oh yes at one point we'll need to table a separate discussion for that yeah Um, we yeah we need to have talks about decadence (laughs) yeah I, i i bailed after the second episode on that um it's 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 a it's an anime that makes a very bold narrative uh, storytelling choice, um, yeah. and it I normally applaud boldness, but in this case, um, it, it caused me to eject. But you've you've tried to convince me to stick with it, and I, I, at some point I may give it a try since you've been such a ardent supporter of it. Yeah, we'll probably make. I guess we'll have to make a special podcast episode just talking about decadence. <laughs> all okay. right, cool, cool. Well, let's 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 schedule that and do that. Um, thank you so much for all of your uh, radar recommendations. And uh, before I let you go, please tell everyone where they can find you on the internet, on uh, social media, etc. Okay, um, you can currently find me on Twitter and Instagram under the tag for both places is Merton, spelled as M for Mother, Free, R for Roger, T for Tango, Y for Yankee, N for November. And I uh, also have a website that's uh, com. but um, that usually the website's linked with my uh, Instagram and Twitter page. 
Excellent, excellent. And like I said before, his Twitter feed is very cool in general. He posts art, and uh, but also recommendations like the ones we just heard. Yeah. Cool. Well, best of luck on the campaign. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'm hoping for total success, and uh, I'll, I'll once again, rec- even though I have a very small involvement in it, I uh, everything that I'm not involved with is fantastic, and I just highly, highly recommend it to everyone. Mm-hmm. All righty. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Martin. No, thank you for having me. I'll hope to speak again sometime. All right, man. We'll do All that. Right. Take care. All right. Bye.